Hi everyone, Libby Hellman here for Authors on the Air. Did you know that this week is National Library Week? I believe that librarians are actually the guardians of our culture these days. And to honor them and the places they work at, this is a podcast of a conversation that took place over the weekend between William Kent Kruger and I at the Warren Newport Library in Gurney, Illinois. The first voice you'll hear is Librarian Deb Hoffman introducing us, and then we'll begin to talk. We are very fortunate um, to have these wonderful authors, Libby Hellman with her new book, Jump Cut. And I think, William, you're going to, Kent, you're going to talk about the new book and maybe some of your other books. And Well, we'll see what we're going to talk oh, yeah. about. Thank you all for coming and, and taking time out of what I know is probably a very busy weekend. Uh, we are thrilled at all of you who decided to come out. As Deb pointed out, next week is uh, um, National Library Week. And so um, what I suggested to Deb is, is that maybe we kick off with stories about uh, a favorite story about libraries. And have I got one for you. <laughs> you go. Here's my favorite library. I love libraries. Absolutely love libraries. Special place in my heart. Probably the same as all of you. But here's, here's kind of where mine comes from. Uh, my father was a high school English teacher. And uh, although he did his best to raise his, uh, his children on, you know, literature with a capital L, um, I haven't always been particularly judicious in my own choice of reading material, and that was especially true in my adolescence. But that changed pretty dramatically the summer I was 12 years old, the summer between my 6th and 7th grade year. I was a Boy Scout, and that was the summer I decided I was going to get my reading merit badge. Now, one of the requirements for the reading merit badge, at least back then, was that you had to spend some time volunteering in your local library. I was living in a little town in Ohio at that point, so I went to the librarian and I made the arrangements, and when the time came, I showed up to do my duty. Now, this was long before they had check, uh, computerized check-in and check-out. You guys remember that little pocket thing they used to have glued to the back cover with the, the little card in there? Okay. So what they did was they put me to work date stamping the returned books. So they gave me this little black ink pad, a little changeable rubber date stamp. And so for the first hour I was there, it was sort of ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk. And after about an hour of that, the librarian proceeded to walk my way and ask me that question that, because I was afraid she was going to ask me, I pretty much knew she would. She said to me, Kent, what do you like to read? <laughs> the honest to God truth was I like to read comic books. <laughs> but I didn't want to tell her that. Uh, and I briefly considered lying to her there, but that, uh, there was that whole, you know, us count as trustworthy thing going on. So I told her the truth. And without batting an eye, she said to me, have you ever read The Count of Monte Cristo? So I walked out of the library that day with that great Dumont classic under my arm, and I came back several days later and checked out The Three Musketeers, and after that it was The Man in the Iron Mask, and when I read everything that our little library had by Dumont, I asked her, what should I read next? And she turned me on to H.G. Wells and Jules Verne and Arthur Conan Doyle and, and Jack London and Robert Louis Stevenson, and all these guys who wrote these great stories that were perfect for capturing a boy's heart and a boy's imagination. Um, I don't know about you guys, but, uh, but you know, I don't think of librarians as just those people who keep the books on, on the shelves in the right order, maybe give us a hard time when we return them late. Um, for me, librarians are, particularly when we're young, 
very real guides in our understanding of the world because they direct us to the books that help us understand who we are and, and our place in the world. And you know, I don't know what you think about libraries, but I think of libraries as, as the archives of our culture. Um, Guardians the, of our culture. There you go. I mean, these are, these are our librarians are the archivists, the guardians. These are the people who take care of those books that tell us who we were, where we came from, maybe help us understand who we are now and, and even point the direction to the future. So, uh, so I guess library story. Okay, so I just, want to, I just want to finish this. Um, if you tell your story, then I'll finish. Thank you. <laughs> Libraries were my safe haven. Um, my mother used to take me to the library when I was a little girl and get me a whole bunch of picture books. And I remember wanting the same book week after week, and it was Blueberries for Sal. I don't know if anybody else remembers. And the reason so I loved it was because it went plink, plink. It had sound effects. You know, the, you know there was the plink, plink, plink of the, of the bear and the mother putting the blueberries in the pail, and I loved that. I learned to ride a two-wheeler bike when I was about eight or nine years old. The first place I went after I had my basket put on the front was the library. And I could take out books on my own, and I continued to do that all through high school. And after I started writing, I started to get to know librarians personally, and I can vouch for what Kent's saying, not only are they the guardians of our culture, but they are a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. Have you ever gone out drinking with a bunch of librarians? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's really one of the most fun things you'll ever do. So folks, let's start off today by giving our librarians a big hand. You know, one of the reasons I'm, I, I have come to be here with Libby is, Libby, you just uh, put out a new book in your Ellie Foreman series. Do you want to I tell did. folks about, about Ellie and the new book? Yes. Uh, I don't know how many of you have read my series. I have two series. This was my, Ellie Foreman was my first series, and I wrote four books. She is an what we call an amateur sleuth. She's a video producer, and um, she gets involved in, in murder mysteries and, and investigations, which is one of the reasons why I stopped writing her, but I'll get to that. Um, I wrote f four books in the series, and then by the fourth book, I was kind of turning backflips, trying to find a credible reason for an amateur sleuth and a video producer to get involved in a murder investigation. I mean, let's just face it, they do not come <laughs> up against dead bodies on, as a matter of course. Um, the other like issue, the rest of us do. Right. <laughs> the other issue was um, I wrote Ellie, or I do write Ellie, in first person. And I love first person. I think that it is the most intimate voice between a reader and a writer. But as my craft got a little bit more sophisticated, I wanted to explore other characters' points of view, and that was hard to do in first person. Yes, you could write third person, and I have done a couple chapters in this book that are third person, but it's not as graceful as I would like it to be. And you know, you're always aware that, at least I'm always aware that I'm breaking point of view and I'm going into someone else's thought patterns. So. I stopped writing Ellie and went on to write another series in third person, a PI series, 
And then I wrote three historical thrillers, all standalones. And then last summer, maybe a year and a half ago, I started, a friend of mine was really into World War II literature. And I'm a big reader. I'm an avid fan of World War II literature. And she kept saying to me, you really should write something about World War II. My first Ellie book sort of touched on it, but it wasn't, wasn't really set during World War II. And I said, I can't do that. You know, look at all the wonderful literature that's already out there. What could I possibly add? And she said, well, think about it. So I did. And a story sort of dropped out of the heavens. And I thought maybe I could write it. And it's about a German refugee one woman who is forced to spy on the early years of the Manhattan Project in Chicago when they when the physicists were were still trying to split the atom. It ends with the atom being split. So it ends in 1942 before they went to Los Alamos and, and Oak Ridge, Tennessee. So I wrote a novella and it worked out pretty well. And while I was writing the novella and studying up on tradecraft as spy tradecraft as it happened during World War II, Edward Snowden was making his revelations and talking about, you know, making his disclosures. And um, whether you think he's a hero or a traitor, he certainly started a dialogue, which is now just getting underway. I mean, when you have Apple and the FBI, and you're, you're wondering how deeply the government can really um, surveil us. And I decided that I wanted to write a story that was set in what I'm calling the post-Snowden espionage era. I wanted to write another espionage thriller. And as soon as I knew that I wanted to do that, I knew that the only character to anchor that story was going to be Ellie Foreman, because that's the kind of person that she is. She, she is interested in those kinds of things. She would get involved in those kinds of things. So all I had to do was find a video for her to produce. And wouldn't you know it, she decided she was accepted to produce a... Um, series of videos for a thinly disguised Boeing, which of course has its headquarters in Chicago, but it's called Delcroft in my book, so nobody can think it's Boeing. And <laughs> she, she's obviously working for the, she's working for the consumer side of Boeing, all the beautiful jets and the, and the, and the quiet engines, but of course she gets mixed up in the military defense contracting side of Boeing who is one of the premier manufacturers of drones and bombers and other defense uh, vehicles for um, our country. And so that was the premise, that was the setup, and the story went from there. Um, I, can, I can talk about some of the details later, but I will say that it was just really fun to write. It got to be a, a very complicated spy thriller. It involves drones, it involves, involves flash drives, it involves surveillance, uh, and Chinese spies. And also uh, the Uyghurs. I don't know if any of you know who the Uyghurs are. We'll talk, I'll talk, talk about it after, in the second round. In the second round. And one of the things we didn't tell you about Jump Cut is, is that it's received a star review in Publishers Weekly, which in our business is the gold standard. Well done. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. So, do you want to talk about Manitou Canyon or do you want to talk about Ordinary Grace? 
Um, I, and let me just sort of introduce my work to those of you who... Uh, has anybody here never read a William Kent Kruger novel? That's okay, just kind of one. Okay, get out. <laughs> I'm joshing you. Um, I, you know, I always ask that question of an audience because I never want to assume everybody here knows who I am and what the hell it is that I do. So what I'm about to say is for those of you who raised your hand, um, yeah, I do uh, publish under that very literary three-name thing, William Kent Kruger, but I go by Kent. So if you have a chance to talk today, just call me Kent. Um, I'm probably best known, prior to the, the publication of a book called Ordinary Grace, I was best known as the author of the, oh, God, I love saying this, New York Times best-selling Corp O'Connor Mystery Series. Uh, I set my work in northern Minnesota, in the great north woods of Minnesota. My protagonist is a guy named Corp O'Connor. He's the fictional, he's the former sheriff of the fictional Tamarack County, Minnesota. He's a man of mixed heritage. He's part Irish-American, and he's part Ojibwe, uh, Anishinaabe which is the predominant uh, native culture in northern Minnesota. Because of that mixture in his heritage, and, and largely because of the area in which I set my work, a lot of the stories that I write come from issues that rise out of the interface of those two cultures, white and Ojibwe. So I've written about Indian gaming casinos, and the effect that that's had both on the, uh, on the Ojibwe community and the surrounding white community. I've written about the ongoing battle we have in Minnesota over hunting and fishing treaty rights. Uh, I've written about the influx of the drug and the gang cultures on the reservation, always at some level in my my work, I deal with the whole question of uh, racial prejudice. Um, okay, so the first book in my series was a book called Iron Lake. That was followed by Boundary Waters, Prairie Ridge, Bill of Hollow, Mercy Falls, Copper River, Thunder Bay, Red Night, Heaven's Keep, uh, Vermilion Drift. What was that? I said 17. I was just jumping ahead. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Trickster's Point, Emerald County, Wendigo Island, and this fall I have number 15 in the Corco Connor series coming out, a book called Manitou Canyon. For those of you who know the Corco Connor series, here's the down and dirty on Manitou Canyon. Corco Connor, uh, let's see. Okay, a man has gone missing in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, um, and the official search for him has ended. Without finding this man, the man's family approach Cork and they ask him if he'll go back into the Boundary Waters, into this great wilderness, to see if he can find something that the official search missed. Cork agrees, he goes back into the Boundary Waters, and he disappears. And it falls on his family to try to figure out the mystery at the heart of these two disappearances. And although they don't know it, not only is Cork's life on the line, the lives of hundreds depend on it. Ooh. <laughs> it's a fun book. I really, really enjoyed writing this book. Uh, I think it's pretty good. <laughs> it is pretty good. And then I wrote, uh, I wrote a standalone called Ordinary Grace, which is not a part of the Corbo Connor series, but honest to God, I think it's the best thing I've ever written. So I hope you have a chance to check that out at some point. I think most of the people here have probably heard of it. It won. It swept all of the awards when it came out in our community. Um, I, what was I calling you? Clean Sweep Kent. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> because I think it won every single award that, that our community gives out. So I have a question for you, Libby. Um, what's a good Jewish girl from D.C. doing writing uh, writing mysteries? In Chicago. In she said in Chicago. Yeah. In, in which people buy and all of that kind of stuff. Oh, um, easy. Once you've lived in Washington, you want to kill them all. <laughs> <laughs> I had to leave Washington, so I wouldn't kill everybody. No, I actually have a background in broadcast news. Um, and when I realized it wasn't going to be president of NBC News by the time I was 35, I moved to Chicago. And that's when I started writing fiction. Um, 
because Chicago just inspired me. I was an outsider when I moved here. I've been here now almost 35 years, uh, over 35 years. Um, but I still hope I look at Chicago with a kind of outsider's eyes. Um, I, I have explored many neighborhoods in Chicago in my writing, um, and I have branched out now to other places and other states, but Chicago is light and it is dark. It is one of the most beautiful cities of the world and one of the most corrupt. It is a city that can rival European capitals in its beauty, and you don't ever want to be downtown alone after dark. <laughs> I mean, the contrast of what goes on in our city, it's just such, such material, such great material for stories. I never really run out of, run out of, uh, of stories or ideas. Something is always happening. Um, in them. So that's kind of how I started writing. It's been a kind of rocky road. Um, one of my series was dropped, and then it was picked up. Another series was dropped, and then it was picked up again. That, that's so the story of the publishing industry, though. And particularly today, everything has, has just changed dramatically. Um, and those of us who are nimble enough to take advantage of all the opportunities, hopefully we have, um, and, and I have. So I want to tell you a little bit. Um, Kent was talking about some of the social issues that he um, explores in his, in his series. Um, I also explore issues in my books. And one of the issues that, um, well, there were a number of issues in Jump Cut, um, is, has to do with the Uyghurs. The Uyghurs, which... Would you spell that? U H Y no U Y G H U R S. They are, believe it or not, the second most populous um, ethnic minority in China, and they're Muslim, and they're half Caucasian and they're half Chinese, and they really have much more in common with the countries that border China, like Turkmenistan and Afghanistan and. And there's like four or five countries that all end in the word stand. Um, because of where they live and because of their customs and their culture, the Chinese government has not ever really liked them a whole lot. And for decades, they have been discriminated against um, really badly. I mean, to the point where their kids couldn't go to regular schools. Uh, Chinese workers would be shipped into the place where they work and would actually take over their houses. Um, and some of the Uyghurs have become radical jihadists. Not many, a very, very tiny minority. But as soon as the Chinese government found out that there could be Uyghurs who were jihadists, they started drone strikes in their area, which is kind of a, a desert area to begin with. Um, and there have been um, instances where the US and the, China, and the Chinese have worked together to drop drones on the Uyghurs. So I decided that uh, one of my characters was going to be a Uyghur just because it would get the story a little bit more complicated. He works for the Chinese government, but is he really for, uh, for the Chinese government? Or is he working for his people, the Uyghurs? Or is he doing both? Or is he a triple agent? You know, um, 
espionage is is a fascinating fascinating story. I mean, it, it can tell a fascinating story. In the final analysis, though, it all comes down to who do you trust and who are the trustworthy people. But I think some of us just love to spin those circles around to confuse you and misdirect you and get you hooked into the point where you cannot put the story down because you've got to see who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And uh, one of the weaker characters um, is actually, um, well, I can't really say much more because I'd have to kill you. <laughs> but there's a reason why this is a fast-moving subway train on the cover. Okay, somebody, somebody's going to get run over by a subway train early on. You'll just have to find out who it is. Does that happen a lot in Chicago? Absolutely. Okay. Every day, we try. <laughs> In Minnesota, you get run over by a horse but, uh, <laughs> or a moose. Yeah. yeah. So tell us more about Ordinary Grace. Um, yeah, I'll tell you a couple of things. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about, I'll talk a little bit about um, why I write mysteries, and that'll be kind of an intro to Ordinary Grace. I tried for a very long time to write The Great American, like most writers. I tried for a very long time to write The Great American Novel. And, uh, and I didn't do a very good job of it, so nobody ever published my work. And finally, uh, I, I, in my early 40s, I kind of went through a midlife crisis, and I woke up one morning, and it just seemed like my life was galloping away from me, and I had nothing to show for all of those years. And, uh, and I decided, okay, let's, let's give it one more try. But I, I decided I wasn't going to try to write the great American novel again. I wanted to write something that somebody would actually read. And I looked around a bit to see what people are reading. And you know what people read? Yeah, they read mysteries. It's a, it's a genre that cuts across all socioeconomic levels, so I decided I'm going to write a mystery. Um, but I, I think I told you earlier that my father was a high school English teacher, uh, and, he, and he tried to raise his children on literature with a capital L. So I didn't read mysteries when I was growing up. Uh, I didn't read The Hardy Boys or, uh, or Nancy Drew or any of that, so I had a lot to learn. And, um, and uh, so I went about learning by going to uh, a place called The Loft in, uh, in the Twin Cities. It's the largest center devoted, to, independent center devoted to the written word in the United States. And I took a class there that was uh, basically Mystery Writing 101. It worked. I wrote the first chapter of Ordinary Grace, my first published novel in that Lake. class. Iron Lake. I'm sorry, Iron Lake. What did I say? Ordinary Grace. Yeah, Iron Lake. I'll get to Ordinary Grace in a minute. <laughs> Uh, but what, the, the best thing that came from that class was uh, there were a bunch of us who enjoyed that writing and critiquing experience. So we formed a writer's support group, and I know you're a part of one, too. Uh, for more than 20 years now, uh, I've been a part of a group that meets every uh, Wednesday night to read and critique each other's work. We call ourselves, oh, I love this, we call ourselves creme de la crime. <laughs> and, and my group is uh, the Red Herrings. Oh, I know another group that call themselves the Suspenders. <laughs> so uh, so uh, that group really helped me hone my skills as, uh, as a writer of mysteries particularly. But, uh, but I always, in the back of my mind, wanted to do something that was a little more, um, a little more literary. And, uh, and great American novel, sort of the great American novel, but a, a story that would allow me to explore some really important aspects of uh, um, the, the things that were important in my life. So, for those of you who have never read Ordinary Grace, 
it is set in the summer of 1961 in a small town deep in the very beautiful Minnesota River Valley. It's the story of a Methodist minister whose beloved child is murdered. That's the compelling mystery component. But at heart, it's really the story of what this terrible tragedy does to that man's faith, his family, and ultimately the entire fabric of the small town in which he lives. What Ordinary Grace allowed me to do was two things. It allowed me to go back and explore an important period. Am I still on? Yeah, an important period in my own life, the summer I was 13 years old. I don't know what being 13 years old is like. For the women in this group, but for guys, it's really an important time. You know, we're standing in that threshold of our manhood. Uh, we still got one foot firmly planted in our childhood and one foot poised to take us forward into our manhood, but we're, we're not ready to go there yet. For a lot of reasons across the course of my life, I have vividly remembered the summer I was 13 years old. And so I wanted to write a story that would allow me to go back and recall that summer and evoke it in such a way that I could put it in the pages of a book. And even readers who were born decades later could read that story and know what it was like to be a 13-year-old boy in a small Midwestern town in the summer of 1961. And the other thing I wanted to do with the story was to explore more deeply the whole question of the spiritual journey in our lives, which is something I do in the Corporal Connor series as well. Um, so I spent a lot of years writing Ordinary Grace, which was a risk because my publisher told me a long time ago they didn't want to see anything like that from me. Um, and then it turned out to be, uh, it will probably at some point, outsell my entire Cork O'Connor move. <laughs> so both me and my publisher are pretty happy. <laughs> it's a great book. If you haven't read it, you have a real treat in store for you. Well, um, I've written 13 novels. Jump Cut is number 13. You know, you started after I after yeah. I did, and you're almost caught up with me. Yeah. My God, you're prolific. No, I've, I've, I don't know how I've done it. Because I really don't, because I am one of the people who I am terrified of writing. It's the scariest thing I've ever done, coming down in the morning and facing a blank computer screen just fills me with terror. It's like, oh my God, I'm a fraud. They're going to see through me. I can't do this. Um, but what I think saves me is I love editing. I love taking something and making it better. I used to do that in film. I have a background in film, and that was my favorite part of the filmmaking process, was editing film. And now it's my favorite part of the writing process, is taking something and making it better. So all I have to do is kind of throw out a lot of garbage onto the screen, save it, and then by going through it four or five or six times, it becomes something that approaches prose. And occasionally it actually ends up being pretty good prose. But, you know, I obsess over every sentence and every adjective and every verb. And, you know, I think I do an okay job, a workmanlike job, but I don't Oh, you are think... so hard on yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, that's the way I look at it, you know? And I, there's always another level. There's, a, there's another level that you can take your writing both in terms of, of the prose as well as the, the character development and a, a surprise twist of a story. And there's always another level that I'm, I'm trying to reach or that I'm trying to go for. Oh, you and I are so different. <laughs> yeah, I know. He, I, I, I just used to get so angry because he would say, I love to write. I can't wait to get up in the morning and start writing. And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> I'll do anything in the world besides write. I mean, you know, 
and, and fiction, I mean non-fiction. Like, want me to write a blog post? No problem, 500 world words in 45 minutes. 500 world words in fiction takes me three days. So here's my process for those of you who have any, have any interest in it. Um, I get up, but my alarm goes off a little before six, so I get up and the first thing I do is I go out to a coffee shop and I write for two hours every morning. Um, and I'm so different from Libby in that I love that writing process, just the process of writing. It just so excites me. I, I do look forward to it. I wrote this morning. I got up at six and I went down and I wrote this. I'm working for the viewers. In interest, I, I'm working on a companion novel to Ordinary Grace. It's called This Tender Land. Oh my God, am I having fun with it. <laughs> and I hate the revision, the editing process. <laughs> that just, oh, I have, I, you know, I have to pour myself a vat of wine uh, <laughs> before I begin it. But you know, the, that's the thing about writing. There's no right way or wrong way to do it. We all discover that process that works best for us, and then we follow it. So, you know? But you, uh, one thing that you have changed, I think, um, I used to outline everything before I would write it. I would outline a chapter. And I wrote three books that way, and they were never published. And uh, there was a reason. Uh, and an editor told me at one point, she, she said to me, um, stop outlining, because what you're doing is getting in the way of your characters. You are having your characters do what you wanted them to do on the outline, not what they might do if left to their own devices. And she said, you really have to try what's what we call writing without a net. Just write and see what happens. And I did. And you know, I'm flailing around saying, who well, what am I, Shirley McLean? Am I channeling something? <laughs> you know? But you know what? She was absolutely right. Um, I, I had a couple pages of garbage, but then suddenly the characters started talking to each other and doing things that ended up being a pretty darn good chapter. Um, so I no longer outline, and my fourth book, the first book that I wrote without an outline, was the fourth book I wrote and the first book to get published. So I do not outline anymore. I have a, a general premise of what the scene is and who gets killed, and often I think I know the perpetrator, and just as often that changes by the end of the book because... I have grown to like the, perp the perpetrator I had in mind, <laughs> or I realized that they're just not capable of it. And um, so much of this is an unconscious process because I'll never forget, and I want you to talk about your process. Um, I, was, I was three quarters, seven eighths of the way through a standalone thriller called A Bitter Veil, which is set, <clears throat> excuse me, set during the Iranian Revolution about an American girl falls in love with an Iranian boy, moves to Tehran, and four months later, the Shah is deposed. Um, and I thought I knew who the murder, murderer was, and I kept liking all the characters. And even though it's on a broad scale, there are really only four or five characters that could have perpetrated, could have committed a murder. Um, and I ended up liking all of them for different reasons. <laughs> and I remember calling up my friend, I don't know if you know Cara Black, she writes mysteries that are set in Paris. She's a very good friend of mine. We travel together when we can. 
Um, and <laughs> I, it's, I don't, it's, I'm at the point where I have to reveal who the murderer is, and I don't know. She says, calm down, go have a glass of wine, go take a Xanax, and we'll figure it out. She stayed on the phone with me for an hour and a half, and we went through all of those characters until finally pieces of the real perpetrator emerged. I said it was an unconscious process, because here's the thing. Once we figured out who the perpetrator was, and I had no idea that it was going to be that person, I didn't really have to rewrite that much. There's something in your subconscious that makes each character capable, maybe, of doing something as pernicious as taking another life. I don't know. But um, I only had to rewrite maybe 10 or 15 pages of the entire book to get it right. So there's something that sinks into one's subconscious, at least mine, that um, tells me, yeah, maybe this is the perpetrator, but I don't know it consciously until I get to it. We are so different. (laughs) (laughs) So this is how it works for me. My publisher is Simon & Schuster, a big big publishing house in, in New York City. And when you sign a contract with a large publishing house like Simon & Schuster, typically it's a multiple book contract, two, three, sometimes even four books in the contract. So when I'm writing a a Corporal Connor novel, I know that as soon as I finish this project, I have another uh, deadline that I'm going to have to meet. So at some point in the process, I try to open myself to story ideas. And I've always been really fortunate in that a good, compelling seed of an idea always plants itself in my brain. And so, while I'm finishing this current project over several weeks, or more often several months, that seed is kind of rolling around in my head, and characters begin to suggest themselves to me, and events, and motivations, and chronology. And at the end of that very long period of time, I know the story. I know how it begins. I know how it ends. I know who did what to whom and why. Um, I know how to plant my red herrings to misdirect the reader. All of that, so that when I sit down to write, it's uh, it, the story's already there for me, and I can just, generally speaking, sit down and just move forward chronologically in the story itself. Ordinary Grace was a little different in that when I entered that story, I just knew three things about it. I knew I was going to be writing about a family that was very much like my family growing up. I was going to be writing about the small t- Midwestern towns that I had grown in, uh, grown up in, and uh, I knew something terrible was going to happen that would threaten to tear this family apart. And the story revealed itself to me in a really phenomenal way, but, but when I write my Cork O'Connor novels, I really do think those stories through significantly. I think the mystery, I think a mystery story is one of the tightest forms of storytelling there is, because everything depends so significantly on everything else. Um, and what we do, I think is is nothing less than magic. You know, we're we're doing magic tricks. We're doing literary sleight of hand. And so, if you're you know, as a as a mystery writer, if you're playing fair with your your readers, you're giving them all the clues along the way that they need in order to solve the mystery when it finally comes to that point in time. But at the same time, you're delivering those clues. You're also trying to misdirect them. You're always trying to take their eyes somewhere else. And so my question when when I talk to writers like you who kind of wade in and discover the story is, if you don't know where you're going, how do you know how to misdirect? I I just don't get that. I I guess I I don't call it magic. I call it reverse engineering. Oh, okay. So, you know, I kind of know where, you know, at some point the character reveals him or herself to me and says, I did it. 
not in a bitter veil, but hopefully. And so I go with that, and, and I'm sort of, that's the end. How do I reverse engineer it so that it's a surprise to my readers as well? And sometimes the person, it's a surprise to me, too. You know, um, in a lot of my books, um, this one, no. This one, this one was pretty clear-cut from the, from the get-go, and it didn't change, and, I, and it was pretty easy, pretty straightforward to write, even though when you read it, you won't think it's straightforward. Um, but a lot of my Ellie books and even my Georgia books, Georgia Davis is the name of my other protagonist, um, I didn't know who was going to be the killer until two-thirds of the way through the story. Yeah, that's what I love about Yeah, there was some, I think it's Elmore Leonard who said he's only as far ahead as the headlights on a car in at night can see, So, which would mean like three or four chapters. He's only three or four chapters ahead of um, in his thinking of, the, of where he is. Uh, you know, we're kind of at that point in time where we can open this up to questions from the audience if you have any. Yeah, we've got one right over there. I've been wanting to ask this. When um, Libby, sorry, well, Libby, <laughs> Libby, 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 you're on the label. Um, <laughs> when the word or name Weavers, Weavers. Weavers first came up in your book, did you give um, a pronunciation? Yes. Okay. I did. When I when I spelled it properly, I said comma pronounced W E E G E R S, and and I had it in Ellie's point of view, so she 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 knew how to to deal with that. Yes, I like to do that. <laughs> Question. Yeah. Both you on that. Well, you wrote, wrote the book like in jumps, but there's a lot of detail, you know, on the Chinese people and technical stuff. You must not know all that. But yes. You get all that information in the same on small town living, unless you live there, you really don't know what that's like. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, a, I'm a former history major, so doing research is one of my favorite things to do. I mean, I would rather research a novel eight hours a day than write. I mean, I've already told you that. <laughs> so I research pretty much everything. On your own? On my own. Um, I call people. I have for this book. I, I had a lot. I had at least three sources who did not want to be named in the acknowledgments. Um, one was from the military. One was from another agency, which shall go unnamed. And then one was actually a police detective, who whose job is uh, cybersecurity, and he goes into the dark net a lot. And so he, he was able to clue me in on some stuff there. So it's fascinating. It's as to me, it's the most fascinating part of writing is discovering who the Chinese are. They, I interviewed. I have a radio show, by the way. It's monthly. It's called Second Sunday Crime, and um, in March, I interviewed the head of the FBI's corporate espionage um, bureau or department, and so we had a very healthy talk about the Chinese being the biggest uh, offenders, the, big, the biggest thieves of corporate secrets in the world, followed, um, followed by the Eastern Europe, Europeans, and Russia was only number three. So interesting, interesting stuff. Um, I love it. Yeah, you know, you, you asked about small town. That's a piece of cake for me because I grew up in small towns. And so um, capturing that sense 
of what a small town is um, is not difficult for me at all. What's what's difficult are, you know, when you become a mystery... Okay, so any of you who have taken a writing class, you know that the first tenet they try to pound into your head in a writing class is what? Write what you know, right? Write what you know. But when we sit down to write mysteries, suddenly we're confronted with all kinds of things that we don't know anything about. Forensics, police investigation, ballistics, the minds of killers, you know? Um, so we end up doing a lot of research in order to get it right. And I know you found this, uh, and it's just surprising to me, but um, when you approach someone who has a, an expertise that you need, they are so generous, in sh generally speaking, in sharing their knowledge with you. So I know FBI agents and Secret Service agents and coroners and, and, uh, and district attorneys and beat cops and homicide detectives, all of whom have helped me uh, in my work. Here's one quick story. Sometimes the research doesn't always go the way you want. So... The only other book I've written outside my series is a book called The Devil's Bed. And here's the down and dirty on The Devil's Bed. An escaped mental patient has targeted the First Lady of the United States for assassination. Although he doesn't know it, in his efforts he's going to be aided by some of the most powerful people in the federal government. Um, the only thing that stands between the First Lady and certain death is the Secret Service agent who loves her. Oh. <laughs> it's really better than it sounds. <laughs> so I knew I was going to have to know about the Secret Service, so I called up the field office of the Secret Service in Minneapolis and made an appointment to talk to the guy uh, who was in charge of it, Special Agent in Charge, Dick Suakala. So I went in to, to talk to uh, Suakala and, uh, and sat down. You know, we get to be pretty good interviewers as a result of all the people we talk to, but I, uh, I almost blew that one. So I sat down, and almost the first question out of my mouth was, so, if I wanted to kill the First Lady, <laughs> how would I do that? <laughs> the FBI has no, the, the Secret Service has no sense of humor. <laughs> so it was a little chilly that first meeting, but uh, at the end of it, I gave uh, Dick a copy of, uh, of uh, Iron Lake and, and said, you know, I'd love to go back and talk to you, and I really know the kinds of questions I ought to be asking. And in the meantime, you know, you might want to read this. He did. The next time I went to talk to him, he, he turned out to be a very, very helpful guy. There were lots of places he wouldn't let me go, but he was very helpful to me. <laughs> considered it. Um, no one's asked me to, and I haven't come up with a crime that I think would be worth it, but I, I might do that one day. I think it's kind of fascinating. Actually, I get approached with that all the time. Um, and typically what I try to do is direct these people who have oftentimes just incredibly fascinating, sometimes horrific stories about um, crimes that have been perpetrated on them or family members. And I try to direct them to somebody who, who actually does that kind of thing. Because at the moment, when I look ahead in terms of, of my own writing career, I have already like three projects that I know out in front of me that I, I want to work on. Um, and, and also, I, I would rather have someone who really knows how to tell a true story working with that person. 
you know, as a writer of fiction, that's one of the things that I love about it is I just let my imagination go. And I, I don't like to be constricted so much by, by the realities of life. <laughs> um, uh, except, you know, when it's necessary. Um, the, the last book I published in the Corporal Connor series is a book called Wendigo Island. And uh, at the heart of that story is the, the trafficking of vulnerable, the sexual trafficking of vulnerable Native women and children, which is a huge issue in Minnesota. And, uh, and I became aware of it because I worked with lots of folks in the Native community. And, uh, and so it was, a, it was an important issue that they, they basically asked me or encouraged me to write a story about so it would become more broadly known. And that one I worked very hard at making sure that I got the true story of how this happens right in the book. But in actual crime itself, I, I, I don't feel comfortable handling that. I guess because I was a broadcast journalist, I feel more comfortable mm -hmm. handling it and reporting on it. And, and in fact, most of my books are based on true events. But as Kent said, we don't like to be limited, so um, we let our imaginations uh, run wild a little bit. Easy Innocence was my first Georgia Davis book. It had a lot to do. It started with a hazing. It's a great book. Thank you. Remember the, remember the hazing at Glenbrook North about 10 years ago? No, yeah, 10 years ago. And um, it ended up on the news that a bunch of senior girls did a uh, really despicable things to a bunch of junior girls. Um, that was the first scene in, in Easy Innocence was, was that particular event because it happened less than half a mile from my house. <laughs> Surprise. You know, and this is true. Sometimes someone brings you a story. You know, what, I, I'm often asked, where, where did these story ideas come from? And my own response to that is, is that when you accept that you're a storyteller, it's like you open this door to yourself. And stories really start coming at you from all directions. They come from places you would expect. They come from places you would never expect. They come from, from uh, friends, family, occasionally newspaper accounts. Um, I wrote a story one time that uh, was as a result of sitting down with a, a co-worker of mine. And, and over coffee, she told me about this, the story of the death of her father. Her father was an ore hand, a tech hand in one of the great ore carriers that, that ply the Great Lakes. It was an ore carrier called the Daniel J. Morell. And uh, in, the, uh, in the fall of 1965, I want to say, um, while it was making its final passage of the season, it encountered one of those horrific gales that sweep across the Great Lakes at that time of the year. And in the course of battling that storm, it, it broke in half and it sank. Uh, up to that point in time, it was the worst disaster to occur on the Great Lakes. 29 men, I think, lost their lives. About two years later, um, the Fitzgerald would go down. The M.F. Fitzgerald would go down. But up until that time, it was, uh, it was the worst. So 29 men were lost, but one guy survived, a guy named Dennis Hale. And he survived on an open pontoon raft for three days in winds that were 60 miles an hour, the waves were 30 feet high, the water was freezing cold, and all he had on was his pea coat and skivvies, his underwear. That's all he was able to put on before the, the boat went down. I mean, this guy should have died, but he survived. And so when I heard that story, I used that as the starting point and the core of one of my books, a book called Purgatory Ridge. Which is a fabulous book, too. Uh, my, one of my books, um, A Bitter Veil, again, 
started with a story that a classmate, a high school classmate told me at a high school reunion. And you were the one that made me, made me write it because it was real. It was a true story. She had, she had gone to Iran and married someone and then the Shah was deposed and, and uh, she got herself out of there. And um, I was hesitant to write it because I said, I can't write that. It, you know, there's no murder or there's, you know, it's, it really happened. And he looks at me, he says, you're a, you're a crime fiction author. Find the crime. <laughs> Oh, there was a question back there. Yes, Ken, you said that this book, uh, you wanted to bring back what happened in your country. When I read the book, uh, I really felt a sense that it was real to you, that some of this had actually occurred to you. Is that true, or is there no autobiographical way? Oh, this is, uh, this is the closest thing to, I, I, I suppose, autobiography that I've ever written. A lot of the story... I imagined, but where the story came from is really my experience. So I'm fond of, of saying I tap the deep roots of my own experience for this novel. So for those of you who have read it, the Drum family is my family. Um, Nathan Drum, who's a Methodist minister, is the father in this family. My father was not a Methodist minister, but he was a, an English teacher, high school English teacher in small towns. And anybody who knows small towns, you know the teachers and, and ministers and bankers. These are people who, because of the position they hold in the community, are scrutinized a little more carefully. So I understood that fishbowl thing. The mother of this family, Ruth Drum, Nathan Drum's wife, is, uh, is a woman not happy being married to a minister. She doesn't want to be a minister's wife. That's not what she signed on for. When she married her husband, it was just before he went away to World War II, and he was going to be a hotshot lawyer. He comes back from that war so changed that he becomes a minister instead, and that's not what she signed on for. Ruth Drum is, a, is a, an artiste. She has a great musical talent, beautiful voice, way with music, and that's what she has what always... Was mother? What was that? Was your mother? Oh, that was so my mother. <laughs> my mother graduated from Drake University with a dual degree, a degree in drama and a degree in, in music. Oh, my God, was she a drama queen? <laughs> and she wanted her life to be about to, to have an audience in front of her life. But what did she have to do? She had to do what most women back then were required to do. They were the homemakers. So my mother had to raise four children and take care of the house, and that was not what she wanted to do. I loved my mother dearly, but she was horrible at that. She was a terrible homemaker. She was a legendarily bad cook. So Ruth Drum <laughs> is my mother. Um, and the children sort of reflect my siblings. That No, no. No, no. The death of Bobby Cole that begins the novel, however, um, is, uh, is a situation that actually occurred in several of the small towns I was in when kids were run over by trains. You know, we were never supposed to play on the tracks. But uh, but the the quarry where those kids uh, swam in in the story, I swam in those in that quarry. I got my hair cut in that barber shop. I sipped root beer in that pharmacy. So I really did pull a lot of the elements of my life and my experience. But the the death itself that, that's at the heart of the book. Thank you, Lord. I never went through anything like that. Let's take one more question. I, I'd love to just comment, if I could. I read Ordinary Grace and absolutely loved it. And my husband, who was just getting started in reading fiction, mostly read nonfiction, he was looking for something to read. And I said, well, try this. You know, it's a coming-of-age story, young boy who's right around our age. 
and he read it and was captivated with it. And I was when when he finished, I didn't know he had finished. I was down in our den, sitting on on the couch, and he walked in and he leaned over and he kissed me and he said, "Thank you." Thanks so much for coming, folks. Thank you.